Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. that our God reigns, that He is alive, that He defeated death, He's risen from the grave, He's broken the power of sin and destruction, and He loves us. So Jesus, this morning we say hallelujah, because our God, He reigns. Lord, we love you. We're drawn to you, God. It's you that our hearts desire. Maybe just as you're standing or seated, wherever you are, just take a moment and just bring your hallelujah to Jesus in your way, in your own words. Just thank him for his victory and for the hope and for the joy. Thank him for the life that he holds before us. The wholeness that He's calling us to. Lord, you truly, truly are worthy, Lord, of Lord, of all of our lives, Lord, not just of 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, but every breath, Lord, every little piece of exertion, Lord Jesus, every moment of every day, you are worthy, Jesus. So thank you this morning that we get to come to your presence boldly, Lord, that we can take times like this morning and Come and sit at your feet and allow your blood, your grace to wash over us, Lord. Amen. Amen. You guys are welcome to to grab your seat. Zane, can I put you on the spot for two or three minutes? Just one or two highlights, a cool story. I don't know if Rebecca has a really cool story or something that she wants to share. Zane, Zane, the dedicated spokesperson. Thank you, Pastor. Yo, what a privilege to be in the house of the Lord once again. Um, and I want to add to what Pastor Philip is. I feel the Holy Spirit is just telling us to realize the privilege of sitting in the fellowship of believers. It's not a, it's not a right. Many people in the nations and the people that you go to on missionary trips in persecuted countries, in countries where there is believers, don't have the right we have sitting here to enjoy amazing worship, entering into the presence of the Lord and really seeing Him. And I feel that the Holy Spirit is just pressing that on our hearts today, that we must realize the privilege of being in the house of the Lord as the fellowship of believers. Amen? Yeah, so how can we sum up six months in 
in two minutes, but myself and my wife got married in May, and um, we felt that the Lord said we must go on a mission trip. We stood in faith uh, for everything to go, um, so we made our way up all the way to Rwanda and turned around at Kenya afterwards, but the thing that stood out so much for us is that the Lord sees people in your daily life. He gives you opportunities in your daily life to minister to people. All the testimonies of, of people, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit just telling, stop, there's that person with a pink shirt, go and minister to them. There's that person that uh, needs healing, pray for healing. There's that person that needs encouragement, pray for encouragement. Sit at this place and wait on the Lord and people arrive. But the beauty of that is, is listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying and really going on that and being obedient to what the Lord is saying. And we saw that every single day of our lives in the six months, that the Lord creates these amazing, beautiful opportunities to just share His love and His kindness and His mercy and His holiness and also the straight words that you think, oh, shucks, I can't share this with someone random I don't know. But that means so much to that person and it shows that the Lord sees them and knows them personally and then their lives becomes transformed. So just to sum up these six months, it's been such a great joy. And we, as a body of believers, who's in Shofar? Raise your hand. Okay. We, as a body of believers, live by a mandate. We are assigned to a call as a church to reach nations and generations through disciple-making, king church planting, and leadership development. That is what the call we take on when we step into this church and we say we are a missional church that will reach the nations through the things that we do, what we are called for. And we have the privilege, myself and my wife, to have been able to use this six months and effectively go to the nations and teach people and do leadership development as the Mullapur Pastor Summit as well and connect with people. And I just feel that the Holy Spirit wants to encourage us as a church that we are a missional church. Let's be that missional church. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus in the city that we live in, first and foremost, as your working profession, but also to the nations as we go out. So, But what a joy to grow up in a church with amazing leaders that equips us to be able to go and do this. So I want to honor the church of Shofar and the leaders that we serve under, that they are truly there to equip us so that we can go and take that responsibility that we have for our faith to the nations. So yeah, it's been an amazing time. If you want to know more about it, um, I am always willing. And if you want to go on missions, I'm also always willing, myself and my wife. And uh, we're willing to go to the nations. And um, the first opportunity for you guys to go is the Mulapua and live. And so take hold of that. And it really does something in your spirit when you go on missions. It does change you. It transforms you. It shows you the realities of life and the people, the fellowship of believers, believers in 
DRC that are really struggling, that are really counting the cost for their faith every day. The people in the slums of Nairobi that live on nothing. The, the believers there that live on nothing, that are really trusting the Lord day to day for their provision. The people on the road that are so thrown by the things of the world and the tragedies of this world that they don't know what to take hold of. There's the realities of life which we don't experience, most of us sitting here. But when you go on missions, you understand what it means to count the cost to follow Jesus. There's people in this world that counts the cost way more than we do. And um, we must understand that. And that's part of missions, one part of it. But the joy set before us, endure the cross. That's the joy set before us. So may we see that as a joy. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Zane. I'm going to keep calling him missionary because he keeps calling me Zane. Um, I want to carry on this morning with um, hopefully bring all of our sports orientated people in South Africa out of the deep, dark depression we find ourselves in. Um, maybe some of you have not yet woken up. It was another Cricket World Cup, uh, another choke, another disaster. Um, but it is great, even as we're praying this morning, how cool it is to know that Christ always leads us in victory. Okay? South African cricket fans, we understand the pain, the heartache of losing and of disaster and we also get to know the joy of following Christ always in victory. Right? How cool is that? That heaven will not have cricket World Cups for South Africans in them. It is a good del deliverance for all of us. But I want us to carry on with a message I started a couple of weeks ago. And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago I said as we're going to look at the life of Samson, we're sort of going to end at the bad news. So today is the second part of, and hopefully bringing in the good news. For those who weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the life of Samson, how he was this guy who was called from birth. The angel, Jesus himself, appeared to his mother to say that this is a special kid, that he's going to be separated for the purposes of God. We saw he was exceedingly gifted. The Holy Spirit came upon him in profound ways. He was highly favored. We saw that he had a position in authority. At one stage, he was thirsty, and he prays, and God is like, boom, just makes water appear in the desert. That's favored of God. God is with this man. He, he has position. He has authority. He's appointed in a, as a judge. The whole of Israel recognizes him as their leader. And still, Samson comes to the point where we read probably one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture in Judges chapter 16, when this lady who'd deceived um, Samson, and as I said, we looked at that in, in quite a lot of depth a couple of weeks ago, she cries out and she says, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. And when he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. Up to that point, every time he got into trouble, he just relied on the gifting, on the anointing of the presence of God. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. And Samson found himself in this place where he'd become separated from God and he didn't even know. We started very briefly speaking about this, the fact that so much of our world today, perhaps our own lives, is geared towards competency. It's geared toward giftedness. It's geared toward having a better CV, another degree, and all of those things 
are not bad in any sense of themselves. But as I was just praying and preparing specifically for this week, this question came up with me. Is that as we are leading young believers, young Christians, as we are discipling people, if there are people coming into our lives wanting to grow in faith, what is it that we are drawn towards? What is it that we are creating and pressing within them? Are we wanting them, leaving them with a hunger to be more gifted and more anointed? Are we leaving them with a hunger to be more used by God and more usable even by God in some sense? And there's nothing wrong with any of those. Or are we leaving them with a hunger to be more Godlike in their character and in their nature? And so we saw Samson as this example of somebody who had everything set up for success but still found himself without the presence of God. We looked specifically at a specific type of, of character that is important for us as Christians. It's called godliness. There are many forms of characters, like all of us have manners. Even our kids, we all know that. We all have manners. Some of us have good manners and some of us have bad manners, but we all have manners. In the same way, we all have character. Some of us have good character and some of us have bad character. We all have character. It's not a, just that we want character. We want a specific type of character developed within people, within us as Christians. And it's called godliness. And sort of the, the theme, the topic probably didn't quite make sense last week. Gym time. It's not because I want us all to be big and strong like Samson. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, it's one of those verses that's easy to remember because... It just flows nicely. It's 1 Timothy 6, 7, 8. It says, Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. And so today I'm wanting us to look at sort of with this whole Samson idea as a background and then this encouragement from Timothy to say there's nothing wrong with being fit. Physical training is good. Exercising is good. Enrolling in a gym is good. Going to a personal trainer is good. Getting sort of Garmin watch coach doing its thing for you, it's good. But he says there's something so much better. Train yourself toward godliness. Godliness doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't just happen one day we're ungodly and boom, the next day we wake up and there's character and there's godliness. The scripture says we must train ourselves towards godliness. Interestingly, it also doesn't say just sit in a corner and worship all day long and I will train you for godliness. That's not the implication here either. There's something that we need to own uh, I love, I think Mads at Convergence gave this beautiful example. She says, she is still looking for the gym program, the gym trainer who can do the exercise on her behalf. And she wants to sit there, lie on the couch, eat the pizza or whatever, and watch them do the exercise and her get the benefit. And sometimes we come even to the things of God and we expect a little bit of that, our, our expectation, when we sit and we think about it, we realize it's foolishness. But if we're honest with the expectation in our heart, it's we're waiting for somebody else to do the work. And as they do the work, we're going to grow in godliness. 
And so Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, train yourself toward godliness. And that's a little bit of what I'm wanting us to think about, to think into this morning. Godliness, what is it? It's a Greek word that's abundantly used in Greek philosophy. In other words, we don't only find it in the Scriptures. It's one of those words that's very easy for us to translate because in the Greek writings, we find it in many places. It's the word Eusebia. It's in the New Testament as well. It means to perform actions that are appropriate or pleasing to the gods. So obviously in a Christian sense, it's the God, but in a Greek philosophical sense, when the Greeks just use it generally, Eusebia is doing the things that the gods are pleased with. It's used in classical Greek where it meant behaving as tradition dictates in one's social relationships and towards the gods. One demonstrates Eusebia to the gods by performing the customary acts of respect. In um, just the next slide there, I don't have the title here on my notes. In the Practice of Godliness by Jerry Bridges, he sums it up this way. He says, the New Testament word for godliness, Eusebia, in its original meaning, conveys the idea of a personal attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to Him. And then he brings in this really beautiful, simple definition of godliness. Godliness is devotion in action. I want us to stand still there for a moment because it is easy sometimes for us to miss the devotion and to focus on the action. It's easy for us to step into these works where we simply do what our minds know is right, but our heart is so far connected from that. That's not godliness. See, true godliness is birthed in devotion. True godliness is birthed in seeing what is right and then doing it, acting appropriately. There's a beautiful parallel for that, to that for those of us who have ever been in love, are in love, are married. You know, there's actions that I can do towards my spouse and for my spouse, and I just do them because it's the right thing to do. And hopefully most of our actions are not born from that. But especially at the beginning, you know, when you're in the in-love phase, we find out what it is that they're going to enjoy and because we want, because our hearts are for them, we step out to do what we think is going to bring them joy. And that's a great example of godliness towards God. It's rooted, it's found, it's based first and foremost in this idea of devotion, of loving God, of seeing God, and out of that flows appropriate actions. And so we can come to God and we can say, God, I love you but I'm not going to do what you tell me. I think James tells us clearly that this is how, John tells us, this is how we love God if we obey His commandments. And so godliness is embracing this idea that God has ways in which our lives should be structured, things that are important to Him, and because we love Him, we want to do those things. Out of a love that is for Him, that is a heart that is surrendered to Him, I want to conduct myself in a way that is pleasing to God. And that's the idea behind this godliness word. Does that make sense? Not just actions, but action that's based in devotion. Devotion in action. Philippians chapter 1, we read, 
Paul writing to this church, and he says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. It's a great love to pray. And that you will keep oh, a great prayer to pray. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and in understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters. I wonder how often we've read these verses and they just haven't touched our hearts as they should. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. And so here, what is it what really matters? May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. That's a really beautiful prayer. But it brings so much. I wonder as, as we've been praying, as, as we're discipling people, what is it that we're praying for them? Are we praying for them to have breakthrough in their relationships and their family lives and all of those things? I hope so. Breakthrough in their careers, praying that God would breathe over them, that He would prosper them, that they would grow in anointing and gifting, the ability to evangelize, to reach other people for Christ. Pray all of those prayers. Don't neglect those prayers. But Paul says, I want you to know what really matters. What really matters is not the external things as much as the fruit of your salvation. What is the fruit of your salvation? The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. What is it that really matters at the end of the day for you and me as Christians is the character that's on the inside. Yes, that character must go over into action because Scripture is clear about that, that true faith, true Christianity, you know, show me your faith without your works. I will show, me my, your, I will show you my faith by my works. My, my faith leads to action. But there has to be this transformation in my conduct on the inside of who I am and what I do. And so there are a couple of ways of determining what are these things that would be pleasing to God. You see, one of the things, one of the big challenges, I'm sure up to now, the whole world will say, yes, that's right. It's all about the heart. We must do what's right in the eyes of God. The question then comes, what is right in the eyes of God? And possibly we can hand out a bunch of questionnaires, send Google Forms or across the city. What is right in the eyes of God? And we are going to get a variety, a broad spectrum of what we believe is right in the eyes of God, and likely what we're going to actually get is what is right in the eyes of me. I love Tim Keller. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you are only serving an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, in other words, if the things that are important to God are not the same, or are always exactly the same as the things that are important to me, then I'm probably not serving God. I'm probably serving me. Because if I'm serving God, there's probably things in my heart that are important to me that are not important to Him. And there are things that are important to Him that are not by nature important to me. And that's exactly why I think we have the Scriptures. So I think a good biblical way for us to determine what are these things that accord with godliness, I think there are two ways. One is we can look at the life of Jesus. That's important. That's great. Do that. Another way is we can look at the writings of the early church fathers. And so Paul actually gives us two lists. I spoke last week or two weeks ago. I said the role, the primary role of eldership in church is to be an example of what godliness 
looks like. The function, the what we do, yes, we must care for, we must look after the sheep. But how do we look after them? We look after them primarily by demonstrating this is what a life in Jesus looks like. And so Paul, twice, once to Timothy and once to Titus, he gives us lists of what I believe are summaries of godliness. I'm going to read through them for us. He says to Titus, he says, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. And then he starts here. And I think there are 13, depending on the exact translation you use in this text that you can figure out. But an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. His children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then... He will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they go wrong. You see, the goal of life is not to become a church leader. We shouldn't be reading passages like this and say, I want to get these things right so I can be a church leader. We should be looking at these and saying, this is the standard that God holds before us. We don't, we don't come to the end of a successful life if we say, I've been a church leader. Look at these titles and these positions I've had. I think we come to a place of success at the end of life where we look and people look around us and they say, that is a godly man or a godly woman. That person's heart, their nature, their whole being, the way they conduct themselves reflects Jesus. Reflects a transformation. They've allowed the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in the who they are. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that's sort of a parallel passage to the Titus one we've just read, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. And so a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? And so I see here examples of what it is that God would have us aspire to. Yes, Scripture does say desire spiritual gifts, so do that. But he also says that we should train ourselves toward godliness. And so the question that I want to hold before us this morning is how many of us are actively busy training ourselves toward godliness? I can probably take that a little bit deeper. It's an indictment against me and church leaders like me. How often... Have we spoken about training ourselves towards godliness? And how often have we spoken about growing in giftedness and the external things? And how often do we take time to speak about what Paul says are the things that really matter? 
And so this morning, I want us to settle down a little bit, and we're going to take time in our small groups over the next couple of weeks and work through this. What does this mean to you and to me? And so I've done a bit of sport. I spoke to some training people, read some articles to remind myself, because I haven't done it in a while. What does a gym program look like? Because Scripture says we should train ourselves toward godliness. So I'm going to give us some, t- some tips to how can we go and train ourselves toward godliness. So one of the things that I read, a, a good first start is to get a good coach. If you want to have a good training program, get a good coach. Get somebody who can come alongside you. He can help you to figure out the good training program, who can lead you, who can say, that's a bad idea, this is a good idea, you're not doing this exercise right, this is the way in which you should be doing it. A good coach. Someone who understands what it takes where you need to go. But good news for us, you already got a good coach. Watch Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord, of appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession and are zealous for good works, or who are zealous for good works. But the grace of God has appeared to train you. Sometimes we think of grace as this excuse that we're, you know, we're sinning, but there's grace. It's okay, I can sin because there's grace. I think that's a complete misrepresentation of what grace means. Grace says, I'm not going to sin because there is grace. When I do sin, yes, there is grace, but the grace is empowerment not to sin. At least as much as it is the redemption when there is sin. So when I'm facing a decision of sinful, when I'm about to step into a moment of sin, I can say, God, there's grace, so it's okay if I fail. Or I can say, God, there's grace, and by grace I'm going to stand. So God, I'm going to count on your grace because your grace has appeared to train me, to encourage me, to lead me, to strengthen me. The first thing is get a coach. You've got a coach. Sometimes we need to go and we need to pray to God and say, God, I want to receive your grace as a coach to lead and to guide me. Once I've got a good coach, the first thing we need to do is a fitness test. Where am I? Before I start training, I need to figure out where I am so I can know what I need to train. So a good fitness test, Romans tells us, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. I think we see that in gyms often. I'm not a fitness trainer, but I think if I was a fitness trainer, I would see that often people arrive thinking they can lift more weight than they really can, especially at the beginning. I've run a bit in my life, done various sports. It's so easy when the guy just, I can easily do that. I can easily run this distance in that time. Well, okay, go. And then afterwards, like, okay, it's a bit harder than I thought. Scripturally, I think we so often spiritually make that same mistake. And Scripture encourages us, don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. 
measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. And so step one is to do a fitness test. That starts with a self-evaluation. I would encourage you, and in our small groups in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you some tools, hopefully, that will help you to do this in a group setting. But start by yourself. Take Timothy and take Titus, these two passages I've just read. Take a highlighter or an extra piece of paper with pen, and every one of those character traits that he writes down there, make a note of it. There are about 15 in total across the two passages. Most of them sort of are similar in both, but roughly 15 that you'll be able to extract from those passages. And then evaluate yourself. Ask yourself, it says here that um, I mustn't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. How do I do that? Okay, maybe on the outside, I don't look wild and rebellious, but if I'm honest with my own heart, am I wild and rebellious or am I submitted in my heart to God and to the people in my life that He has placed over me, whether they be a spiritual authority, a social authority? You know, here's a good one. When I'm driving on the road, what does the speed limit mean to me? Is it sort of a nice suggestion that I might consider from time to time? Or is it a, I'm submitted to the laws of this land with joy. It gives me joy to set my cruise control on the speed limit. Because it's godliness built in my character. I'm not wild. I'm, I'm not rebellious. I just picked the first random one that's bring out of my page to me. But take those 15 and go and evaluate yourself. The great thing about this evaluation in this way, it's between you and God. So it's like, you know, when you, self, when you mark your own test. I don't know if you guys ever did that at school or at varsity. You write the test and then you mark it yourself. And you can do that and you can give yourself full marks. Although you'll be lying to yourself. Or you can be honest with yourself and say, oh, these are probably some areas that I need to grow in. So first step is to do a self-evaluation. The second one is take that list and ask the people in your life who know you. Ask your spouse, your friends, your colleagues. Say, how do you guys experience me in these areas? And then be ready for an answer. You can't ask someone that question and then be angry at their answer. Okay, You have to settle that in your heart. Whatever you choose to say, I'm going to choose to receive it. I'm going to not fight with you. I'm not going to argue with you. But I might ask you to explain because I want to understand why you see me that way. Just here is a good thing. If you ask and you don't like the answer and your first response is to defend, you can already know there's something wrong. If your first response is, oh, wow, it, it, it hurts hearing this, it's fine. It's not what I was expecting. It's not what I want. But can you explain to me, help me to see what you see? If that's your response, that's a good step towards maturity. If your response is, no, you're wrong, you misunderstand me, you've missed the whole point of the exercise. You're trying to defend yourself. I remember when I was still lecturing at Varsity, we had a big, big classes. I think I can't remember the exact number. There were more than 2,000 people in the subject, but we were a couple of teachers, and we'd split the classes. And I probably had five or 600 first years in my classes um, most semesters. Just the first years grouped, and then the second and third year, and the honors students as well. 
And at the end, those of you who are at varsity, you remember at the end of every semester, every varsity's got this in some form, you fill in a form. And on one page, the form we had, on the one side of the page, we evaluated the course content, the module, the textbook, all of that stuff. And the other side of the page, we evaluated the lecturer. Now, 18-year-olds who have no personal relationship with you can be very honest, sometimes scarily so. And so they'd fill in, and at the end of every semester, I got five or six hundred of these forms back, and I thank the Lord for nice organizations like the varsity. They would take that, they'd have a center for continual educational development, etc. They'd process all of that, and then a week or two later, I would get, back then we still had actual document that you could probably an email or electronic thing now, but back then it was still in your postfucky, in your little pigeonhole. You'd get an envelope, and your boss would get an envelope. And in the envelope would be all of the statistics, the summaries of all the scores they gave for the subject, but also for you, as well as every single comment that everyone had written down. And you read that, and it's, ouch. This is, I don't think this is how I teach. The nice thing is, among five or six hundred people, there are encouraging words in there as well, and then some ridiculous stuff, but sort of across the broad spectrum, you learn something about yourself. Doing that for a couple of years, getting all of that feedback. You can either look at that and throw it away, or you can say, this is how the people I'm teaching are experiencing me. How can I grow through this? How can I take it on board as hard, as uncomfortable as it is, and allow me to change? We have to learn to be open. And in this context, I wouldn't say go and ask everybody that you've ever met in your life. But take these things to the people who know you, the people you trust. Small group is a great example. Spouse, hopefully you trust your spouse. Say, be honest with me, and then don't fight with it. <laughs> Talk through it. Say, I want to grow. I want to develop a training program, so you're going to have to show me what are the areas that I need to develop. <clears throat> the things, there are a couple of them on websites. You can go to 360-degree evaluations, which is sort of an idea to look all around you, except you can send me a message. I'll send you the one that kind of we've drawn up to use a little bit. But that's step one, is do a... Step one is get a coach. Step two is do a fitness test. Step three is develop a training program. First Corinthians 9 says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. Training ourselves for character is for an eternal prize. Let's be disciplined in our training. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Remember, what is godliness? Godliness is what my body does. It's the actions that flow out of devotions. He's speaking about godliness here. Training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You need to go and sit and work out a training program, and your training program is not going to look like my training program. Because your fitness test is not going to look the same. The results of your fitness test are not going to look the same as the results of my fitness test. So what we need to do is we need to go and we need to figure out, okay, what are these things? Remember, we've got a coach, the grace, the Holy Spirit. We can call on Him. What are the things that I need to grow in? And then, together with the people around you, with a small group as an example, sit and say, how can I grow in these Oh, wow. Random one. You guys look around me and you think I drink too much. 
oh, okay, it's not cool to hear. I don't think I drink that much, but you think I drink too much, so maybe I do drink too much. Okay, how can we help? How can I grow in this? What are some training things that I can set for myself to make sure that I grow in this? How can you guys as a small group, as example, keep me? What is a training program going to look? I mustn't be angry or dishonest. Anger maybe is one that many of us can relate to. My frustration gets the best of me at times. Okay, so what is a training program? Well, find someone in the small group to frustrate you as much as you can. <laughs> Train me to not get angry. That was a little bit facetious, but hey, maybe that could work. What are the things that I'm going to be deliberate to keep my eyes on in these situations? I want to act differently and have our groups help one another grow towards that. Second Peter, once and still speaking about training, he says, in view of all of this, he says, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence Moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection and, bro affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. We need to supplement. We need faith. We need to grow in faith. But added to our faith, we need to throw all of these things together of which godliness is one. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their old sins. Those are some hard words at the end there. But we need to work at it. Where most training programs fall short whether it's an academic training program, a physical training program, whatever it's, a training program. Do you know where they all fall short? They fall short when I have to do the work. It's easy going for the fitness test, getting the coach, signing up to the program. It's hard five o'clock tomorrow morning when I need to wake up to go for the run, when I need to work at it. I'm meant to be running four times a week, now I run once every four weeks. Same, same. No, it's not the same. If I really want to see the fruit of a healthy training program, I need to commit to it. I need to see it through to the end. I'm not a, a doctor, but I, I believe one of the big problems we have in South Africa, one of our biggest health problems is our tuberculosis crisis, which still is one of the biggest killers in the country. And one of the biggest problems with tuberculosis is that the doctors go around and they give people TB medicine and they use the TB medicine until they feel better and then they stop. And they don't finish the program that they've been put on medically. Do you know what happens? The TB becomes resistant to that medicine. And the next person who gets the TB, that medicine doesn't work anymore and doctors have to figure out a different way to treat it. And so we get sort of medicinal resistant TB strains developing. And that happens spiritually to some of us. We start on the program until we think, oh, I'm okay now. And then we stop. And then we never grow beyond where we are to where we should become. And we almost inoculate ourselves against the training program. 
And so one of the keys is to see it through to the end. To say, I'm going to work, I'm actually going to wake up every, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to be deliberate in finishing this program that I've started on. The fifth thing, just some tips, just to help us grow in godliness, find a gym buddy. One of the things I learned early on when I was still at school, having to get really fit for sports or whatever, it is really hard getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go for a run, especially in the winter if it's still dark. But when there's that knock on your door at 5 o'clock in the morning because your friend is there to go for a run, that changes everything. It's quarter to 5 I need to go for a run. I'm just going to roll over and that feeling will go away, you know. It's quarter to five. My friend is going to be waiting for me on the corner where we said we we're going to meet to go for the run. That's a different conversation. It's much harder to roll over when I know my friend is going to be on the street corner than when it's just me. And so Timothy, Paul again to Timothy, he says, so flee youthful passions. And often I think Yaku spoke about this last week. Flee youthful passions. Run away from them. Pursue, and we often focus on the first part of the verse, but there's a really cool second part as well. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Pursue what is godly, in other words, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so a great way to do this is have two or three people and say, we're going to tackle this program together. We're going to keep one another accountable. Small group is a great catalyst potentially for this. Where we say, hey guys, I'm going to train this week, I'm going to train anger. I've been struggling with my anger. So I want one of you every morning or every evening or whatever it is to ask me, how did it go with my anger today? And then pray with me and pray for me because we're not here to point fingers. It's, we want to help one another through this. You know, like a gym body who's spotting when you're doing the bench press. You've got that big heavy thing, and if you drop it, you're going to be in pretty serious trouble if it falls on your neck. So you've got someone else there with their hands just under it just to make sure that you're okay. Number one, you don't injure yourself. Number two, you don't get stuck in a situation you can't get out of. Get that gym buddy who can help you with that. Somebody who can be there with you, who can cry with you, who can sweat with you, who can wrestle with you. Find somebody who you can pray with. You can say, help me to grow this. We're going to keep, in a sense, one another accountable. We're going to support one another. My gym buddy isn't there to tell me how useless I am. Get a different gym buddy. My gym buddy is to encourage me. Say, come on, you can do one more. You can do one more. Come on, we're almost there. The program says we needed to do 15 repetitions, three sets. You're on 14. This next one's hard, but you can do it. I believe in you. That's the gym buddy you want. Find that gym buddy. And then pay the member's fee. I wish Jim was free. Maybe he can join like a Momentum or Discovery or something and he gets significant discount. But you still have to pay something to join a gym. There's a member's fee to godliness as well. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is a price to be paid. People are going to think you're mad because you're different. This is one of those verses I went and looked and I looked at all of the different translations I could find, hoping it would say something different. Unfortunately, the bad news is they all say the same thing. 
the message, put it this way. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There's no getting around it. All who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. People are going to look at you and say, you are mad, you are silly. Why are you stressing about this thing? Now, that's not important. Because maybe it might be you to say to some friends you'd really love, I can't be part of that anymore. You guys are going to do it, enjoy it. I'll join you afterwards or I'll go up to you. But that thing, I, I can't. There's nothing wrong with it as such. Maybe, maybe it is. But when you go out and the alcohol bottles open, I don't trust myself around that anymore. So I'm not going to be there. I'm going to come for the bride. We're going to have a lot of fun. But when the meet's done, I'm leaving. I know for some people it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. But you guys can carry on and drink the whole night away. I can't. Because character says I must not be a heavy drinker. I need to train myself toward that. And so it's probably not kind of the most hoo-ha, deeply spiritual message we've ever heard. But at the same time, I think it is close to one of the most spiritual messages we can hear. That we would train ourselves toward godliness. I can't train you toward godliness. I can try and, in that sense, be a type of coach. Do a little bit of a seminar. How do you grow in godliness? A little bit of something perhaps like we do today. You know, you come and you attend the seminar, but at the end of the day, Scripture doesn't say, where's that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6 again? Don't waste your time arguing over godless ideas. I read that one day. It revolutionized my relationship with social media. Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, let your pastor train you to be godly. Let your parent train you to be godly. Let your small group leader train you to be godly. Let the YouTube channels you watch train you to be godly. It's not what it says. Train yourself to be godly. We need to take ownership to say, God, I want to live godly in Christ Jesus. There's a fee to pay, but this is what really matters. This is what really matters, the fruit of my salvation. Jesus, yes, you died for the, my body to be healed. You died for a whole bunch of other stuff, but this is what really matters why you died for me in my life. Yes, you died for salvation. You died for all of those things. I'm not breaking any of them down. But in this context, in terms of for me, growing in godliness is what really matters. So I want to embrace that. Can we stand? I'd love to pray for us this morning. I'd love for us six months down the line whether we're a church of 50 or 500 or 50,000, we'd be a church that we'd say, in the last six months, I've grown in godliness. I'm not the man or the woman I used to be anymore. Not because I'm perfect. And I had a conversation. I just want to mention this quickly. One of the things that we love doing in ministry today is we love saying that the Enemy comes and tells us lies about ourselves. We need to just step away from those lies. I don't think that's always the truth. I think sometimes the enemy comes and all he does is he highlights who we are. He doesn't even need to lie. He doesn't need to lie in my life to bring accusation against me. He doesn't need to come and tell me stuff that he's made up. So I don't need to fight against the lies Sometimes there are lies as well. But as a rule, it's not the lies that I need to fight against. 
I need to embrace the truth. And there are two truths. The first truth is that I am, pick one, not above reproach. I am rebellious. I am not blameless. I am arrogant. I am quick-tempered. I am a heavy drinker. I am violent. I am dishonest with money. I need to embrace that, if that is me. But then there's a greater truth. And that truth is, but this is why Jesus died on the cross. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross because I am sexually moral. He died on the cross because I am sexually immoral. So the devil doesn't need to come and lie to me to tell me I'm sexually immoral. He can just tell me the truth to tell me I'm sexually immoral, as an example. But then I can tell him the truth and say, yes. But that's also why Jesus died on the cross. So yes, I am a failure outside of Christ. But in Christ, I'm a new creation. In Christ, those things have been washed away. I love how Scripture says specifically about sexual immorality. He says, don't do any of these in the next verse, but su such were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleansed. So the enemy can come and say, you are angry and arrogant and all of those things, and you, the right way I think we should approach it is to say, yes, I am. Or perhaps more importantly, yes, I was. But I was, am cleansed. And washed outside of Christ. That's exactly who I am. But guess what, devil? I'm not outside of Christ anymore. I'm in Christ. And I'm a new creation. So you're welcome to keep telling me about who I was because I know who I was. And if you want to get stuck on who I was, devil, you're going to bore yourself to death. I want to start thinking and talking about who I am in Jesus by the grace of Christ. And I think when we enter into that, we embrace that, we allow ourselves to begin to walk in who Christ has called us to be, not in who our natural person is outside of Christ. just wanted to throw that in there. I just might be encouraging for some of us as we pray. Let's close our heads. Jesus, I want to thank you today that you came to be an example to us, Lord. Lord, not only an example of giftedness and healing the sick and doing signs and wonders, but an example of character, of godliness, of doing the actions that are pleasing to the Father. And so, Lord, we come this morning, I come this morning, Lord, we bring our hearts before you, even as we read through this list, Lord. I know in every one of our hearts there was a couple of things that it just reverberated, resonated with us, and we were like, thank you, God, you've done this. And there were some things that resonated and we were like, oh, shucks, I still so struggle with that. And so, God, we bring those before you, Lord. Lord, the ones where you've already worked in our hearts and the ones where you're continuing to work. And we say, Jesus, we want to grow in godliness, Lord. God, we want to train ourselves towards godliness, Lord. We understand it's going to be hard work. We understand it's not always going to be comfortable. It's going to be some early mornings and late nights and special diets and doing things differently, Lord. But, Lord, we see the prize. We see the goal, Lord, that this is what really matters. We see what Paul writes, that our prize is everlasting prize, Lord. Lord, our prize is eternal. It's not just for this earth. And, and so I pray for grace upon all of us, that Holy Spirit, you would extend grace to us as that coach.
to allow us to grow in godliness, Lord. Lord, we want to grow in the gifts of the Spirit. We want to grow in anointing and favor, Lord God. We want to grow in just an awareness of our calling. We trust you for positions of authority across our lives and in our workplaces, Lord. But above all of them, God, we say we want to grow in godliness. Lord, the disciples we make, God, we want to make them hungry for godliness, Lord. And so we pray that you would come and establish that grace in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope this has encouraged you a little bit. As I said, we're going to take a couple of weeks in our small groups and, and spend time a little bit, work through this, work out some training programs. We're not just going to leave it here at one message. We want to take it to heart and grow in it. But if you do need prayer right now, maybe about some of these things I've mentioned, maybe about something completely different, you would love someone to pray with you. I want to invite you to step forward. We'd love to pray with you. That same God who rose Jesus from the dead is still alive and He wants to come and bring healing in whatever you need healing in. Maybe you need physical healing. Maybe there's a part in your heart. Maybe you're going through stuff. Maybe there's a really exciting opportunity and you just need wisdom. Whatever it may be, we would love to pray with you. You're welcome to step forward. There's coffee and tea outside. Hang around. Have some coffee and tea, especially those who are visiting. We'd love to get to know you guys a little bit better. God bless you all. Have a fantastic day further. And you're welcome to join us this evening again at 6 o'clock. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.org.